Jersey is the world. Hi everybody, Chris Gathers here. Welcome to New Jersey is the world. Your weekly celebration of New Jersey's culture, history, food, nostalgia, ridiculousness, the joy, the love of this very strange, very densely packed state. I feel so lucky that I get to host this show. I feel so lucky that I get to touch base with all of you. And I'll tell you what, I also taped my album the past three nights in New York City. I think you can hear my voice is a little blown out. So this episode's coming out a little late because I had a crazy busy weekend. And uh, the Patreon, I, we are going to pick up the pace. Um, again, I, it's been such an insane thing with me just trying to get this special over the finish line. But I'll also tell you what, I met a bunch of New Jersey's the world fans after the shows this weekend. Thank you all for coming out. Thanks for supporting your guy. It means a lot. On Saturday night, Springsteen was at MSG while I was at the Audible Theater at Manetta Lane. Big night for Jersey right there. Big night for Jersey right there over there in old New York City. Anyway, this week's episode... I am very excited to bring it to you. Very excited. This is another interview, and this is with someone who I knew decades ago. I knew her as Joanna. You might know her as Joanna Angel. And if you know that name, you know that Joanna Angel is someone who is given a lot of credit for, in many ways, revolutionizing the porn industry. And it's pretty badass it's pretty bold pretty risque by some people's standards but i want you to know i'm not here to for this to be clickbait i'm not here for this to be sensationalized what joanna and i have a conversation about is how both of us met in the late 90s in a town called new brunswick new jersey and we have a really fascinating conversation and the main thing I want to point out is there's been so many conversations on this show where we find out that pretty much anybody who's doing anything interesting in this state seems to have a background in independent music, that the punk rock scene seems to have inspired them. And I was there and part of the punk rock scene that Joanna was a part of. And there's, first of all, a lot of funny name dropping of late 90s Jersey bands that come into this, Tales of Heartbreak, where names are named, bands are called out. It is very joyous and very funny. And I applaud Joanna for going there because it made me giggle. But she also points out at one point that that was a really strong scene. And that she and I have both had, had these strange careers in areas that aren't music. For me, it was comedy. For her, it was in the world of adult film. But how we were on the fringes of a punk rock scene that taught us so much and how it seems like she and I actually took away many of the same lessons from that. When you think of it from that sort of philosophical bent, I think it's an amazing look at the independent culture and the independent streak that New Jersey encourages and a lot of the feisty young people who want to go out there and make a mark. And I hope you enjoy it. Find it fascinating. I know I certainly did. And it felt really good to reminisce about those old days with Joanna. She might not remember me specifically back then, um, but we certainly remembered those times. And... What a weird thing, all these years later, to look back at that time with someone who I had these passing moments with. And then we both went on to become notable in these very different worlds. It's a good interview. I hope you like it. Hi, everybody. Chris Gathered here. Welcome to another episode of New Jersey is the World. This is a very special interview for me. This is someone who I crossed paths with in a different life when i i look back i realize i was a, a literal child 
she and I have touched base about it over the years. I don't know that you remember our, our brief encounters back in the day, but I am talking with someone who's preparing coffee right now as we interview. This early morning interview is happening. Um, she's, of course, the, uh, the, the new face of Liquid Death Water, a canned water I've had many times in a green room at comedy festivals. Yeah. Also a star of screen, both mainstream and adult. Uh-huh. It's Joanna Angel, everybody. Hi, good morning. And look, it's not even that early. Um, I'm just not a real adult anymore. I was close to being one. There was there was a good while where I was that person where I was like, oh, I'm up every morning at six thirty, and then I'm at the gym and the blah 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 blah. It's like you move back, you know, and I moved back to New York. I'm like, oh, 10 a.m. <laughs> yeah, no, sleep in. God bless you. I have a kid now, and I'm, I would kill to, I would kill to sleep past eight. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, Joanna. Hi. It's so good to see you. Every few years we touch. <laughs> you know what? I didn't even know this was the name of your podcast. And now I am so honored to be on here. <laughs> oh, and listen, we are, we are honored podcast. to have you. I didn't know it was a specifically New Jersey podcast. So now, now I'm really happy I'm on here. And it's very funny because... Now that, you know, I, I live in, in New York and people are like, oh, where are you from? I'm like, well, before I lived here, I lived in L.A., but I'm like from here. And they're like, what part of New York are you from? And I always say I am from the part of New York called New Jersey. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, a lot of people know your work. A lot of people know you as the founder of Burning Angel, as someone who's given a lot of credit for revolutionizing your industry and doing it your own way. Well, thank you. <laughs> um, it's really impressive. Thank you. Thank it's really empowered. It's very cool. Yeah. You've been interviewed thousands of times. I have, but this one's going to be different. I think so. Talk about New Jersey. <laughs> it's true because I happen to know something because we were there at the same exact time, which is- We were. You're a Rutgers University graduate. You know, it's funny. Yes, I'm a Rutgers University graduate. And then I don't know why I'm going to say this now. Like, I want to say the end at the beginning, like, because some, some people don't know. And I don't know if you know, I, I sold Burning Angel in 2002. So I'm not um, a company owner anymore. Um, right. But, you know, we uh, we have the beginning, we have the end. And then I suppose in this podcast, we can we can get the middle if we feel like it. Um, and listen, and my main thing is business-wise, you create... Well, you created something. Something in New Jersey they don't like is selling. And that, I, not at all. No. If there's anything people in New Jersey do like, it's a fucking successful hustle. Let's be clear about that. <laughs> and I'm glad to hear, you know, drawing the lines about your involvement. But as, as far as founding something that changed the game, that's undeniable. Um, and, and a question that I wonder if you've been asked in any of these thousands of interviews, has anyone gotten as micro-specific to ask you, how did uh, your New Brunswick and Rutgers University punk rock experience affect the business you went into? Because in many ways, I greatly identify with you and a lot of the choices you've made. Oh, I mean, I think I've briefly mentioned it, but I've never done an interview with someone who was there. I mean, probably the closest I came to, to you know, talking about, you know, punk rock and, and everything. Yeah, I did an interview with Toby Morris. Um, uh, a great interview with him but 
you were actually there and we were there and I tell everyone, um, it's kind of funny cause I will always, um, fight about this or, uh, with my husband. Um, we, the New Jersey, New Brunswick, like, um, punk scene that we were in at that time was so special, um, and so important. Um, I actually, I just wrote a quote that summed it all up. We were both in a book that's coming out soon. I think you were, yeah, you were in it too, like the book of emo or something. Mm-hmm. And they did a lot of interviews with people and he asked me to do a pull quote for the back of the book. And I was like, this was like the most important time in punk rock that like 17 people, you know, knew about. <laughs> Cause this was before phones and this was like before, you know, this was sort of the last era before people were finding out about things on the internet, you know, like we were kind of in this magical, weird last era. And it's like, I said in the, in this, in my lovely quote that will probably get shortened. Um, there it's like, was not even a time of like, you know, whenever there's like documentaries about like um, periods of time in music, like there was no like drugs anywhere, you know, I mean, they were there, but they weren't like, the forefront it was not like it's not like everybody was having sex with each other like this was like a very strange um nerdy scene but like very important things were happening and I totally didn't answer your question at all um I mean that time in life like really shaped me um and really shaped how I ran my business um and I always felt like it, it you know it just gave me like these certain like ethics that I always stuck with and you know what? There were times as my business got like really big or as things got crazy and, you know, as I guess I got more, you know, successful, there'd be times where I'd have to sort of face decisions that are like, that like kind of went against my New Brunswick morals. And every time I, I, I did, um, every time I did would go back on them or, or not listen to those, or be, um, I would regret it. So, um, definitely like certain ethics and certain morals and certain values I learned from, um, the New Jersey, New Brunswick punk scene that will be, uh, instilled in me forever. And I'm not gonna, I, I learned, um, I guess the hard way to, to always listen to that voice inside your head, um, that we, that we gathered in that time. And also, um, something I, me and you experienced because I I was uh, saying it to whatever, I forget the guy's name who wrote that book. Like our perspective is very important because we, all of our friends, when you think back on it, were in the bands, you know, we were like a few of the people that were on the other side of the stage. (laughs) This is what I wanted to talk to you about. This is a huge thing. Scene, 80% of the scene was the bands. So there was like yes. five. And then a lot of times the people watching the shows were just the people who were playing next. We had no reason to be there other than enjoying the music. You know? <laughs> like, that's like, you know, so we actually really got to soak in kind of what these people were, I don't know, stood for, you know, like everybody else was in a band. So like they had, it's almost like they were going to work, even though, you know, it was work that was not making money, but you know what I mean? Like they had like a, 
like we had no reason to be there other than the fact that we absolutely loved it. There were a zillion other parties or things we could have done on campus, but we chose to be in these basements um, watching shows. Um, so I think we really got to like soak it up in a way that that not everybody did, you know? It absolutely is pretty formative for my my comedy career and the way I did things. And I'm glad to hear you use that word that there was some ethics to it because I, I think a lot of people can, you know, encounter your work and certainly say the aesthetics of punk rock, it's very clear how you incorporated them. The visuals, um, whether it's the body art of people in your films or the premises of them, presence of piercings. But I, I think what sets you apart from some of the other people who might dabble with that aesthetic is the ethics. And I think that there, you were very, very, and are a very, very captivating performer to certain people. And there's other people who might be able to mimic the look of having tattoos and, and. Oh yeah. And a lot of people, the punk, but the ethics is the key, right? A lot of the people over the years did it, you know, much better than like, you know, over time, like tattoos, be like sort of a, a an underground whatever like you had tattoos identified with a certain you know culture you know scene then over time at a certain point that was not the case anymore um i never even i mean the early days of burning angel like we were not like tattooed porn you know like mm -hmm. I, we were known as like punk porn and over time like really knew what that meant you know um and uh, so then over time, people were like, yeah, you're like a two porn website. And so we just kind of like ran with that. But yeah, it was very hard to sort of like identify with, you know, what the aesthetic was. Well, that's that's I want to talk about that difference, because like I said, it would be easy to use the phrase tattoo porn. And I'm sure a lot of people do. But I think there was a lot more to it than that. I, I think, you know, there are a lot of people who could just have stumbled into that, but not everybody becomes Joanna Angel. And I know that's probably silly for you to hear, but there's a lot of truth to it. There's tattoo porn, there's Joanna Angel, and there is a difference there. There is a difference. And I think a lot of it is in the attitude. And like you said, the reality of the fact that you walked this, it's not performative. It's performative in the sense that you are a performer, but the actual heart and soul of it I was there. I was at parties with you when it was just a bunch of idiots on Plum Street, on Plum Street drinking in like weird houses. I was there. Yeah, yeah I know. Really? So you threw up in front of Plum Street. Right? Let's talk about this. I wasn't sure when we we're going to get to this. Do you remember this at all? Okay, so I have to be honest. Yeah. I pretended that I remembered it on a podcast, or was it your TV show? A TV show. Yes. Yes. I remember it. Um, at all. Yeah. Well, let me walk you through, I'll, I'll walk you through our encounters. I, I, I had a bunch of people. Um, yeah. Like wh whenever you told the story somewhere, mm -hmm. a bunch of people the next day, like, like brought it up to me. Like, I guess a bunch of people heard it and I was like, I don't remember this at all. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I Plum street, obviously very well and the parties and this and that. So like, well, happened <laughs> let's walk through our personal history everybody for those of you who don't know me and chris both went to college i guess we were in college at the same time right are we the exact same i age? was there in 98 to 02 wow me too yeah. I, 
think? What was your major? <laughs> American studies, the easiest major I could find. Yeah. I, I took one American studies class. Like one. I was an English major. Anyway. What was that? I was an English major. Mm -hmm. As were all of my friends. Now we have many mutual friends. To put it in perspective, I was the reverend at Fid's wedding. Yeah, he actually told me that I ran into him at some point. He doesn't live in New York anymore. Or did no, I? He's back yeah. in Jersey. Yeah, I talked to him. Uh, not so. It's so weird. I've told I've told him a few times I live here, but he's in New Jersey now, and I don't know. And he's also fit. Listen, there are probably a lot of people who listen to this New Jersey podcast that talks about punk all the time, where everybody knows Fid, Fid, the New Brunswick legend. He's also. Uh, the weirdest combination of like the biggest extrovert who brings everyone together and also the most nervous introvert I've ever met personality wise. He's, he's a, a unicorn of sorts, I guess. Indeed. So here's what I remember. Can I walk you through our history yes, that you clearly remember, but that's burned into my brain? Yeah, yeah. So I showed up in New Brunswick, 1998. I was hanging out a lot with a bunch of friends of mine who I grew up with in West Orange and they all lived at a punk house at 11 Robinson Street. And this was kind of yeah. a little bit of a fringe punk house. Um, fringe, yeah. Okay, so who lived at 11 Robinson Street? The people you would have known. Um, I, I mean, I know I went there. You I mean, absolutely did. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So Tim from Planet Project lived there. What? Tim from Planet Project, yes. the drummer from Planet Project. Yeah, that was and like, then, like the emo house. A little, they all listened to the queers and a lot of Lookout right. Records stuff. Dave, Jan, Sal Lucci. Okay. Um, they were fringe, but they were friends with, you know, your fids, your uh, Ronins, your, yeah. your another guy I went to high school with, a divisive figure, but who who I grew up with, Wilson. Everybody knew Wilson back in the yeah. day. These people, these are all names I'm sure you're familiar with on some level. Yeah. So yeah. I show up and I'm this nerdy little guy who listens to too much Mr. T experience and too much Weston and all the pop punk stuff. And all my friends um, start going we've got to get you in a room with Joanna because I'm not trying to blow up your spot, but you were like a little nerd freshman year. <laughs> yeah. And I if I remember right, did you work at Brower? Did you work at Brower? Oh Do you God, remember this? I did, yeah. That Brower, everyone was the food, <laughs> the, not the food court. Why would I like the food, the dining hall? The dining hall. And you always used to have to wear the polo shirt. So here's what I remember. I'm going to tell you, I remember, and I don't want you to think I'm stalking you. I just have an insane memory. You were friends with, there was a girl named Stephanie. Yeah. You, you both worked at Brower Commons. You both used to have to wear the polo shirts and you were like cute little punk rock nerdy girls. Yeah. Yeah. And she kind of went off and became more of like a hippie at some point. As many do. As yeah. many do. It was like a hard, hard friendship thing. I was like, I'm sorry. Ooh, I'm the, the Grateful Dead. don't know if this is going to work anymore. Yeah. I, listen, I've, many a jam band has ruined a punk's life. We all know this. So all my friends used to say, like, we got to get you and Joanna together. And it was not something I was thinking about seriously, but it made me so... <laughs> tell me well see i was always very nervous around you because i'd see you guys and i'd say hi to you and stephanie at the brower commons um <laughs> we were but so i was always nervous because i'm like are all my friends telling joanna this too like are all the you people know? who are like bro joanna no i was like told me we could have been such a cute couple now listen to this because this story has a few layers oh my god it's so this is embarrassing well i start doing comedy uh, sophomore year I dive more into comedy. I'm going to less shows. You did, you did comedy in sophomore year? Wow. Yeah, over at a theater on Douglas. Uh, there was a 
theater called the Cabaret Theater. They mostly did like musicals and plays, but they had an improv group that Very joined. Start doing comedy, you know? It's like, What's what that? Is, that's so early to start doing comedy. It was, it was. So I start kind of, I'm doing less shows because I'm doing more comedy, going, seeing less bands. Melody Bar gets knocked down around that time. So bummed that we never got to as 21 year olds. I was, uh, the court, the, all of these things. So I remember, remember there was that eighties night every week. Mm-hmm. Too, but I'm not 21 yet. And I everybody would come back to my, me and Stephanie's apartment, like after the night. Um, and then I remember, um, once, you know, cause I always went to the shows there during the day. Yeah. Once I like, I forget who it was. It was like, just come at night, the 80s night when you had to be 21. And like, I literally snuck in, not even snuck in, like, like I didn't have a fake ID. So not like I tried to sneak in with a fake ID, like sneak in, like go underneath the, a guy's arm when he wasn't looking. Like I, <laughs> <laughs> and the bouncer knew who I was because I was there all the time as an underage person. And he literally like lifted me up by like shirt and threw me out like a... <laughs> <laughs> like get the fuck out of here like i was a, a bug so it was once you know it was, was such a bummer when it got knocked down i know so then probably junior year i had lost touch a little bit with the punk scene because i was focused so much on comedy i was at a party with my punk friends my buddy mike d convinces me to drink whiskey a mike d who who was he oh. He lived at 11 Robinson Street. He was part right. of that punk house. Yeah. Okay. Got it. He convinced me to drink whiskey. I'll tell you how it went. It's the only time I've had whiskey. A lot of people have this story about tequila. For me, it was whiskey. I mean, I've been sober many years now, but even when I was drinking, I had this one night with whiskey where I drank a bunch of whiskey and then we went to a party on Plum Street. Mm -hmm. And by the time we got to the party, I was so fucked up because I had been I didn't know how I was like drinking too much whiskey. Right. I wound up uh, leaning against a chain link fence on Plum Street, vomiting through the chain links. And all my dumb punk friends, as was the way of New Brunswick punks, just kind of tossed me on the sidewalk and they went into the party anyway. And who came out and held my little bangs back <laughs> for good old Joanna, who I hadn't seen in such a long time, who I had said hi to in Brower Commons just a handful of times, shy, like the shy little Smiths fan that I was. <laughs> And, uh, and, and I, I just like held, held you like a, like an alcohol nurse. You did. You held my hair back and you rubbed my head and you made me feel better. And I think you may have even gotten a couple of my friends and said like, guys, just take them home and come back. Which they did. <laughs> you protected me and I appreciate it. And then we had one other run in that I remember vividly because it represented something huge to me. Oh, Okay. And something that will segue into conversations about our careers, I'm sure, at some point, which was senior year. I had, not, I had not seen you since that party on Plum Street. And I was obviously humiliated that that was a thing right. that happened. Okay. I was running to catch a train to go into the city to do some comedy. Okay. And I was running down the street with the river dorms on it, which is not... What is, is that George Street? Yeah, like... New Street or, or something, yeah. I was running late to catch this train, 
trying to get down there to, you know, where Easton Ave bottoms out to that horrible train station that just truly, especially back then, uh, truly a pit of human despair. And I was running down the block and I was right by like seminary place and you were walking up the street by yourself and you were like, Hey, and you remembered me and I stopped and I was like, Joanna. And you were like, hi, how have you been? And I was like, good. I'm, I'm so sorry. I'm running late to miss a train. And you were like, all right. And I kept running. And the reason I, that always stuck with me was I would tell you, you were someone who I always thought was very cool from afar. You, we had had a few conversations where you seemed so nice. We'd had this humiliating one where you held my hair back. And uh, I always had it in my head of like, I should be friends with Joanna. Like, I should be. And I ran and I got that train. And I remember realizing in that moment, like, I'm all in on this comedy thing. Like, I'm all in. Like, there was a stretch in my life where I would have missed this train to talk uh, to this cute punk rock girl. Right. And I just ran away. And I'm all in. I'm all in now. Like, I'm going. I, it was a moment that I so distinctly remember being on that train going, like, I I'm all in. To not drink whiskey. Mm-hmm. Or, um, yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's cool that I was part of that moment. You were. You were. You know, it's like if life was, uh, if you were writing a life, like a movie about your life or something, if it was fictionalized, I don't know. I'm like, yeah, it's like, it's like we should have, um, should have gone on a date or something. It know? was in me. My friends were trying to actively engineer it. No, I will tell you that. I remember, you know, I was, you know, somebody should have told me. Nobody told me. No. Been into it. <laughs> no, here's the thing. You wouldn't have been. I was like a, a, all the all the band guys. <laughs> all those band guys were into you, I'm sure. And then on top of it, I was just like we're all such jerks. I was a sweet boy. Like a hardened person the way I was not no, you know they weren't or whatever it was. They you know what they were all jerks as boyfriends, wonderful people as friends. So you did date some New Brunswick scenesters back in the day, it sounds like. Like all of them. No. <laughs> You know, I lost my virginity to to Steve Asbury, <laughs> the drummer of Worthless United, the most important oh. band in New Brunswick ever. Listen, played so many shows with IDK. You don't need to tell me about Worthless, okay? Yeah. Um, and I loved him very much. Um, and then he. Um, he cheated on me with a girl he met at 80s night at the Melody Bar. So, you know, I was very upset. It was I was 21. <laughs> this would have never happened. That is a goddamn New Brunswick story right there. I know. Kind of like, you've, it's like we followed paths. Like, like I was like, to the point where it's like, what the hell is going on? I mean, Steve lived, you know, well, he never actually lived in New Brunswick, but, you know, he was like a New Brunswick hanging out person. Obviously, like, you know, broke up and we didn't talk for a while. Um, Then we wound up becoming friends. Um, Steve, actually, kind of funny story or not funny at all. I don't really know what to call it. You know, he cheated on me with this um, girl at the Melly Bar. She was beautiful. Um, and then I think, you know, I don't even really know what happened. Um, I think he wound up 
cheating on her too. <laughs> and she had very tough big friends. So at some point, again, at the Melody Bar, um, and I don't know exactly if that's why this happened, but it had something to do with that girl. Um, anyway, these guys, like, like people beat the shit out of him. Like, he got really beat up and wound up in the hospital. Um, so, and then I, so when that wound up happening, um, uh, we wound up kind of becoming friends again. It was one of those, like, oh, you know, Steve's in the hospital. And, of course, so deep down inside, I was like, ha karma. <laughs> <laughs> Just stayed with me. <laughs> but, of course. I was like, oh, you know, whatever. Like, he really, he actually got very badly beat up. It was uh, probably traumatic, um, and I know it changed him forever. But anyway, we wanted to become friends. I don't even know why I told that story. Um, he, lived, he lived in New Jersey, and then, oddly, we, he lived in New York when I lived in New York, and we kind of passed each other on the street, and then we had the same sort of circle of friends in New York. And then I moved to L.A., and Steve moved to L.A., um, and I saw Steve a lot in L.A., um, actually, to the point where I moved back to New York not that long ago. And oddly, when I first moved back to New York, I went out to eat with my sister, like, in one of the first few months I was here, and lo and behold, Steve is there. And I was like, do you live in Brooklyn now? <laughs> somehow, we've been following each other around for the past, um, or actually, I following me around for the past 30 or something um completely coincidentally or so he says i guess you know or maybe he just never got over me um i'm lying about that i think he actually just finally got engaged at like age or something and, um he was a good friend of mine that's all wow who knew we'd have an epic tale about the drummer from worthless <laughs> Perfect podcast for it. I mean, at this point, we're just going to keep running into each other for the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, but no, he's like a, a friend. Um, I love him very much. And it's okay. I forgive him. I think he got, you know, and I think, uh, I, think I think we're past that. Um, Sounds like it. Sounds like yeah, it. Yeah, but I loved him very much. Um, I should, you know, but I, you wouldn't have done that to me. Never. Never. No. I would, we would I mean, have stayed together forever and gotten married and I don't know. And we'd be living in like Fairlawn right now. <laughs> like living in Fairlawn. There is an alternate reality where you and I are just like happily married accountants who live in Fairlawn together, who never went into our industries. Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't have gone through the hardships we needed to go through to like become who we were. You, you know? Yeah. I needed uh, yeah, to. Yeah. I, I wouldn't I have fought like, through a lifetime of depression. Yeah. Yeah, I needed to get cheated on by Steve Asbury to, like, you know, want to get revenge on the world and, <laughs> and do porn. <laughs> wow. Would you say that is a, big, a part of your origin story? Was the anger from that? No, I mean, look, okay, I think, well, that was, I mean, look, I can't, can't give Steve um, that much credit. No. Um, well, I look, there was this, this strange, like, that time in the punk scene, it was like, it felt like all the guys in the punk scene always wanted to like date girls outside of the punk scene and the girls in the punk scene, like we were almost like considered like, like we were also dudes or you were just like a slut who like had sex with everyone, you know, like, but either way you're not, you know, you were almost like you were either one of the guys or you were like some kind of groupie. Um, and I was not either of those things. And I think I kind of went back and forth 
by being like, well, which one of these am I, you know? But I genuinely loved all the bands and all the music and all the messages. And I genuinely like, like so strongly believed in all the things that everybody was saying and really cared, you know? So like to kind of be like a groupie was like, you know, insulting, you know, it's like, no, I want to like, I don't know, hook up with or date or whatever these guys, because I genuinely like love what they do. And I am like attracted to it. And I'm like interested in the things that they say. And I like, whatever, you know, um, anyway, you know, uh, I don't really know. Like, I think being, um, like, like a fan or on the other side of the stage and seeing all my friends and, and so many amazing things happening in the scene and everybody kind of like doing these um, important things or things that I found important. Um, you know, there was just this thing inside me, like at a certain point, it's like, well, I want to do, you know, something. And what is that thing? You know? And it was definitely all this energy of like this, you know, the whole like DIY ethos is like if you could do anything you could make anything happen you know and you don't need um money from other people and you don't need um a, a company to help you and you don't need this and you don't need that and um you know it's like i learned all these cool things but didn't really know um where to put it um yeah and also like it, i don't know you know i was kind of like finding myself you know uh sexually I guess but like wasn't really able to like talk about it because everybody in the punk scene was too busy just talking about how to overthrow the government <laughs> <laughs> or you know what show to go to next <laughs> so you know I don't know um, it's so like I, there was just something inside of me that, um, that wanted to like burst. I did, you know, my senior year of college, did you, did you wind up graduating college? I did. I did schlep through. I didn't Me attend too. graduation, but I limped to the finish line. Yeah. I never actually went to like graduation. Cause I wound up, it took me like six years, I think to graduate even more than that. I think six and a half, maybe. It was one of those those last like few credits that kind of like I was like well I'll do it later and I don't know took I took like a summer school class I don't know um, yeah I uh, I don't remember what I was saying graduation why did I talk about graduation well, we were talking oh, about okay one of my one of my final years like um, I did like a program where you could do an internship oh my god how dare you drink water out of a plastic bottle. In front it was of given me. to me for free. I'm so sorry. Cans only from now on. From yeah. this moment, my life forward. Only no. water from cans. You are you are hurting the environment. You have a kid. You know. Think about the. Please shame me. I'm getting shamed by Joanna Angel. This is a fantasy of my, this is my sub fantasy. <laughs> Do you want the environment to be here in 20 years? <laughs> Good. Please ecologically shame me. This is my. This is my fantasy come to life. Yes. Are you? Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, I took, um, so I took a, um, internship in my senior year of college and that's probably why I saw you on the train because I was going 
to the city a few times a week. Um, and I always love, that is something that's always been very consistent about me that has never changed, that I always loved, like, being in, in New York. So I remember I kind of took an internship partly because I just wanted to, like, be in New York City a few times. So it always made me feel very important to, like, get on the train and go do something. Yeah. But um, I, I took this internship at this, like, like sex positive like feminist like sex magazine which was like very ahead of its time um and it was called nerve it was nerve.com and it was actually the very first um like dating website too and i was able to get like college credit for working there um so that sort of like opened my eyes to a bunch of different things too and there was like it was cool you know also i was getting to the age like like everybody was starting to leave new brunswick like almost like kind of like I'm getting kind of old for punk rock I was also getting a little like you know yeah a lot of the bands that I liked weren't like around anymore and like I was growing up I was like trying to figure out like who am I next and it's really cool to see this like kind of upscale world like I remember at Nerve like you know people like wrote these like erotic stories and there'd be these like really cool like lesbians given like sex advice and people talking about polyamory and all these like kind of like upscale sophisticated sex things, you know that I had n never heard of at all you know and I guess I wasn't really having all that much sex but it was very cool to read about it <laughs> <laughs> you know it, it really does sound like because we were there the same exact years yeah and encountering the same thing, because it sounds like you had your version of this as well. And and correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't want to put words in your mouth. But for me, if I'm being blunt, I'm like, came up in New Jersey, going to tons of shows, went to New Brunswick, was going to shows, and loved it. And like you said, it felt important. And I understood that there were things happening that were like, cool, and that people deserve, like they deserved more attention. And eventually they got that, you know, the way people talk about Lifetime now is like, Lifetime was just a band that played too much in New Brunswick that we all liked a lot, you know, and now people you like... You see Life Lifetime? Yeah, I've seen Lifetime, yeah. Wait, when? when? I, Are you I, what's that? When? How? If you're the same age as me, how did you see them? Well, I saw Lifetime... Uh, first Before? Of, I saw them early, uh, and then I also saw them reunite at fest okay, i did see them reunite okay, i saw the reunite at lifetime and i saw them once or twice at the very tail end of things okay um down there where at the melody bar no like house type stuff like like i'm really upset i never small I never, stuff i even lied about it once somebody really? was, yeah you were like around seeing lifetime and i was like yeah <laughs> yeah, we were at the. We were like I think we. They were done by the time I moved. Well, we, I think this because there used to be that house on Handy Street that was the famous yeah. house for shows, and that shut down right as you and I got there freshman year. Yeah. I think right before yeah. we got there, so it was like I think such a bummer. Yeah, um, or there could have been a chance I was at a show and like saw them and didn't even like know. You know, I didn't know. know. I feel. I, I remember specifically. I, if I remember right, it was Lifetime, IDK, and Worthless with your your former lover. A lot with my love. Steve. Yeah, but New Brunswick was like this inspiring place, but also even the punk scene. For as much as I romanticize it and give it credit, it was also a fucking cautionary tale. Yeah. I also was in that town and I was like, this town is nothing but fucking construction. 
This town itself, the physical look of the place is depressing. So like you, I'd go to the city and look around and be like, this feels like magic. Then I'd take that train back to New Brunswick and be like, I feel like I'm going to get physically fucking attacked in this train station. I got <laughs> And then in the punk scene too, like you say, you start to get older and it's like not disparaging anyone for their problems, but you also sit here and you go, oh, some of the people I used to put on a pedestal are just like people who, if I'm being frank, like, like to get fucked up too much and they're still doing it four or five years later. And I used to think it was the coolest thing in the world. And I also just, yeah, me and you, we weren't in a band, you know? So then you look (laughs) at the band. Like, it's almost like I treated like this, my passion, like this, you know, I treated going to shows like it was my job. I mean, I would skip classes for it. Oh yeah. So it's like, of course we had to find something, you know, we had to like find something. We weren't, you know, these people, like they, they were in bands. They had a reason to, to keep, you know, going to these shows like how much longer could we you know just sit on the other side and it's like we weren't even you know that, that's another thing I, I noticed about the book we were in like every other person that gave a quote for that book was either in a band or, or owned a record label or like put on the shows like I wasn't I didn't have a job in punk rock <laughs> you know no I never did and me I and you and I'm glad I never did like it really genuinely was just a hundred percent I was a fan you know yeah but not me. a little bit groupy. Um. <laughs> See, I was, I was more like, I was, first of all, dealing with real depression that I'd be traded for later. But mm-hmm. also it's just like, I have to get, for as much as I loved so many aspects of New Brunswick, I also was like, I have to get the fuck out of this depressing place. And when you're four or five years in and some of the same people are playing the same shows, like I said, I'm not judging, but I just remember it being this major motivation for me. And like the magic was gone. And and to see like I, how bad I'm a creature of habit. I would have stayed in New Brunswick. You know, it was like one of those like it's like I I knew when it was time to go, but I was sad. I think I mean I was there for like six and a half years. I don't know. Um, yeah, I stayed for longer. Yeah, I had to get the fuck out. I was like, how many times are we just going to like schlep over to the fucking Joe's Liquors, the King of Kegs, down on Lewis Street, buy fucking well, mad stuff? Leaving, you know. What's that? Everybody else was leaving. Yeah, everybody else people, goes. Yeah, the people that you knew, except for, you know, except for Finn. <laughs> Dude, what, I remember when I saw the Ergs blow up, The I've told this story before, but I... I had heard, I had seen the Ergs when they were just starting because uh, Joe Erg was dating a friend of mine at the time. And I was like, these guys are good. Oh, they're cool. They're from Middlesex County. And then didn't think about them for years. And then they exploded and they were playing the knitting factory. And I went and saw the knitting factory and all of Jersey showed up. And the first thing that happened is they hit their first chord. And then I saw Fid jump off the stage. And I was like, oh, that fucking guy Fid is still around. And that's how I, that's how Fid and I reconnected. It was always very nice, but also Fid later told me because I for a while. Yeah, we lived together for a while. Listen to this, because here's what he told me. Not only did you guys live together for a while. Yeah, I was in love with him. Does he know that? Yeah, yeah. He, he I definitely that was very op- op- out in the open, and he very much, like was not did not feel the same way about me. But then we became or like you know it was one of those friendships where it was I was you know. And then, yeah, I don't know. It's like we were like, I don't even know what we were. Now, I'll tell you this too, because there's an alternate reality where you and I were supposed to date. 
Right. There's also an alternate reality. Fit and I knew who Fit was in New Brunswick. He doesn't remember me. I was the shyest, quietest kid in the entire punk scene. But my favorite bands are the Smiths and J Church, who Fit is also obsessed with. Yeah, yeah. And we're both depressed people who doubt ourselves. We would have had a lot to talk about. And then on top of it, not only did you live with Fid, yeah. I believe he's told me you lived at the corner of Somerset and Plum. Yeah. I lived across the fucking street from you guys. Wow. You I... lived above the Hungarian Center. I lived above yep. that restaurant that was across from the church, which has now since been condemned and knocked down. I don't know how we didn't, like, friends. We were supposed... There is a world in which you and I should have been really good fucking friends from 1998 until now. Yeah. It didn't happen. That's so weird. Yeah. But here we are. Me drinking water from a plastic bottle, sending you into a fucking rage. Aching. You were like, I'm thirsty. But I, well, I saw your eyes go wide again as soon as I saw it. It really offends you. So this liquid, you really are driven. Liquid death. Change the world. You really, you're on mission. You got mad. You got legit mad. You were giving me the business and it was funny, but you also were like, yo, fuck that plastic bottle. Drink from the can. I love it. Um. Yeah. Wow. How funny. Well, we're going to have to like become friends now. I'm into it. I'm Do always around. Comedy out here. Okay. So I have to admit it is, oh, you can help me. It is. I have a bucket list because you know, I'm old. <laughs> um, I, I really want to do stand up like once. Oh, I even have a list of things that I want to, um, talk about it and I've I've been wanting to find like a comedian who could like help me or just like help me come up with like a an, a routine you know and I have a bunch of stories um and every time I think of a story I actually write it down in this notepad I've been doing it for years <laughs> yeah that's just you're just a comedian that's just what comedians do. Like I, yeah you know I did win the avian award for best sex comedy nine times um an award that nobody else cares about to win that I dominated <laughs> <laughs> I want it more than anybody else <laughs> ever. <laughs> I cannot believe something that no one tried to do. I made some funny porn that everyone fast forwarded through the the funny parts, except for the voters of the Avian <laughs> Board. <laughs> I love it so much. Well, I'd be happy to help. Honestly, we can have offline conversations. I can give I you would, advice on. Uh, yeah. I, I really do want to do stand up and some fun stories from over the years. Um, and this is, you know, definitely the place to do it. Um, yeah. Although I will say, I mean, you've already been such a big part of the punk scene and the porn scene. Are you sure you want to enter comedy yet another scene where women have to like prove themselves more than they should and watch their backs right. at all times from fucking psychos? Like once. Is that what everybody said? You know? And then you're gonna get really into it. Then you get really into it, yeah. That that feeling of making people laugh is um is addictive, you know. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And I had that a few times. I do remember once. I was so proud of all these comedies that I made that, like I said, ninety eight percent of the population just fast forwarded through the plot. But I do remember once. You know, in Europe, they're like way more you know, open and stuff. Anyway, I went to this um, porn, like, film festival in Europe, um, and they, they played um, one of my movies. 
Um, and it was actually the first time and they, you know, and they had me do like a shortened version of it. So like the sex scenes were like two minutes or three minutes instead of, you know, 30 minutes or whatever. Um, so it was basically the plot of the movie and just like, you know, two minutes of sex. And I, I, it was the, I think the only time I actually got to sit in a movie theater and see one of my movies played. And I have to tell you, like when, uh, these like funny plots were happening and the whole movie theater started laughing. Like I started crying because like I was so used to like making these movies and like, yeah, I know they win. Like, like people be like, wow, that's funny. Like I never really got to see the reaction. I was like, but everybody's laughing. That's amazing. <laughs> what a moment. What a moment. I was like, wow, this is such a great moment. And you know, knowing everybody laughs at your jokes. And I've done things like, similar to stand-up um mm -hmm. i mean i guess after i wrote my book and i did my book tour um and uh, once again i wrote an erotic novel that's like 98 percent jokes <laughs> actually some of the bad amazon reviews on it were like i, I bought this to be aroused <laughs> 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 what a good reason. What a good reason to get a bad review. I'm so sorry, but this is too funny. I'm, I'm sitting here trying to get off. Like, like, why does the author, like, just keep <laughs> funny? It's like, it's like I've invaded porn just to find a place to make stupid jokes. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, yeah, when I did get to go on my, like, book tour, it was really awesome. I, you know, that I picked these, like, passages from the book, and I'd be in front of, like, a crowd, and everybody would start laughing. It was, like, a really great feeling. So I could see how that would be, um, I guess, addictive. But, no, I'm I'm not going to – I'm too old to start a career in comedy. I just, you know, it could just be, like, a like – a, just want to look. I just want to do it once and see if I'm even good at it. And then we yeah, can I can help you. I, I can I can – help you figure out where to do that and have all those conversations imagine if this leads to us like touching base talking about new brunswick the punk scene how inspiring it was how it helped drive both of us and then i, I tell you how we had this alternate reality where my friends were telling me you know we got to get you and joanna together and then it leads to you in comedy and we trade places and i become a I porn do. actor Star. Mm, yeah. no one wants that a 42 year old man with a paunch what's underneath there listen so i don't know <laughs> listen okay I, i'm not that's like, very important okay yeah no i'm so never, you why did i even say you know that i'm funny you know? it's true you don't know <laughs> what i you have no idea no. yeah yeah <laughs> i keep that behind closed doors um anyway joanna this has been such a joy yeah. What a fun thing to reminisce about new brunswick and it really is true to think back like those exact years when it was such a weird time, right? Like New Brunswick was still a little bit, I mean, it's still not totally safe, but I mean, you couldn't even walk the length of George street and they had put all the money into athletics, but it was all construction. And, and meanwhile, there was this punk scene that was kind of a lot of cool stuff happening. And we all felt like we we're at the tail end of it. And like you said, it was still flyers and fanzines and word of mouth and this very cool no thing. So, I mean, it was a very special place. Everybody, like doing their own thing everybody really made very very cool shit happen without the involvement of you know record like whatever you know my husband talks about growing up in kind of the, what he calls the punk scene in california and i say he's a poser 
<laughs> you know, he'll talk about like going to the rainbow or going to the Roxy or like, you know, and I'm just like, this, you know, like we did not have this, like, like, like it felt like everybody in California had like the ultimate goal of like getting signed to a label or something. And like, we lived in this bizarre universe where like, that was like so not a goal of anyone to be successful no our goal was like can we convince bands to stop here between new york and philly and also like i hope skinheads don't fuck up the basement yeah. like we were just like as as long as skinheads don't destroy the basement that would be nice tonight yeah, like, there was no yeah there was no um there was no path to that and we would get mad at people when they like found a way to make a living on oh Furious. Like, you know, in town and Thursday. How dare you guys make a living off this? Midtown. How dare you be so motivated? And also, it's funny, that book, the book you mentioned that we were both interviewed in, which I I don't know if it's, it's got to be coming out soon. Yeah. They mostly, I was like, listen, I was around, I started doing comedy. I was like, I'm not, I don't want to sit here and claim I was like a major part of the scene. I was a fringe guy. So they mostly wound up talking to me about Gabe Supporta's old band, Humble Beginnings, who I saw a thousand times as, yeah. as part of the North Jersey pop punk scene. And I was like, yeah, like, of course Midtown was successful. Gabe Supporta was like incredibly motivated, never forgot anybody's name, and was also ridiculously charismatic and attractive. Yeah. Like he'd walk down Hamilton Street and even I'd be like, holy shit. Like born to be a rock star. I yeah. Mean, and I, then everybody was mad at him. So everybody was like quietly mad the whole time that he was hot and, and good at what he did. <laughs> what a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> how dare he <laughs> have a plan? <laughs> yeah. How dare he want to escape the borders of New Brunswick, New Jersey? How dare he? Um, one other one I've seen, I, I saw Gabe in LA a few times again. I feel bad. Everybody click on this interview and think they're going to find some, some juicy details about porn. We're just like sitting here talking about New Jersey. Oh, no. I'm telling you this, this New Jersey <laughs> podcast is it, it's everything everybody wants because, because here's, because here's the thing, Joanna, I'm telling you, one of the things about New Jersey right now is like we're in i'm you know we're in our 40s now and there's a lot of people who came up when we did and the really cool thing happening all over jersey and i've said this on the podcast a million times and i think you would be fucking proud of our old scene like thinking back to who we were when we were kids there's so many people right now who are like running and being vegan back- restaurants and 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 book collectives and all this stuff and 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 like volunteer organizations where it's like you find out all of them were at shows in Jersey in the late nineties, early two thousands, everyone doing something cool right now is at those shows. It's fucking remarkable. Yeah. And you know, made like met a lot of, you know, wonderful people who always had my back, you know, and when burning angel did start to explode and we got, you know, got a lot of hate on those message boards all the like key players in the punk scene, like, like stuck up for me. Um, Mm -hmm. that meant a lot to me, you know? Um, and I felt like I had the punk rock seal of approval, but there were other people who, you know, kind of laughed at me. Um, but the, the people that I thought were important, um, thought burning angel was cool. Yeah. 
It is fucking cool. As someone who knew you from afar, you know, not but but someone who knew you from afar, I remember someone, some one of my old New Brunswick friends was like, "Do you remember Joanna? Do you know what she's doing now?" And I remember at first going like, "Oh wait, little Joanna from Bower Commons!" Like that was my first instinct. And then I looked into it, and I was like, "And I told you this when you came on the TV show too." I was like, "There's so many cliches about porn." But everything that I can tell is that you were like, fuck it. I'm going to do my own thing and I'm going to take, you know, the same thing. The number one thing I think New Brunswick back then taught us was like, you don't need other people's permission. You don't need other people's approval. Invited. Just go fucking make it happen. Carve out some space, create the oxygen for it and make it come to life. And I was like, I could see it right from the start of like. And don't do what everybody else does. And you know what? Every time, like, as you know, like I said, as Burning Angel got bigger, you know, and, you know, you, you start to like whatever, when I get like advice from other people or something, they'd be like, oh, you know, this niche is making money. You should shoot something like this. You should do this. I mean, even just the other day, like, you know, social media is such a like thing. Like I had like, I don't know, I guess a social media manager for like a month or something. And they were like giving me, you know, like, oh, you should like do this or do this. And like, you get that cringe feeling like, yeah. I wouldn't, I don't want to post something just to get views or just get like, like that feeling of like, no, I'm not doing that. I don't care if it's a guaranteed going to make a million dollars. Like I just can't live with myself if I do that. And anytime I've gone back on that feeling, and that is a feeling that came from New Brunswick when I, you know, made a certain movie or did a certain thing, like just to get ahead and it didn't come from the heart. Like it always it just it never worked you know um and um and so that's that's just something um you you i you i feel like we develop these really good gut instincts to just genuinely forever and ever like not do what everybody else does not follow the same path that everybody else does to create your own and and we develop these really amazing um i think um, gut instincts that have kind of told me what to do for better or for worse my whole life. And part of those gut instincts, um, I started to feel like in LA, I mean, which I never, LA never felt like a home to me. It always felt like work, you know, and for a while my work kind of was my home. And I almost felt like a similar feeling like towards, you know, how you say like the end of New Brunswick was, you know, like where I'm like, it's time to get out of here. You know, like, um, like uh, I felt like a, like I graduated from porn and it was time to go, you know? And that gut feeling, that same gut feeling that, that I learned, you know, in New Brunswick to just kind of follow what your heart is telling you to do, like for better or for worse, was like, it's time to move back to the East Coast. And everybody was like, that is the stupidest idea. Because I had a very nice house out there. <laughs> um, I had a great situation um, out in LA um, that I could have very much kept living um, for the rest of my life and had that out. And moving back to New York, um, this is a very expensive city. Um, I don't know. It kind of like messed up a, uh, like a very nice, comfortable plan that I had laid out for me for the rest of my life. And I was like, this is just not me. It's not me. Like living in this like nice suburb. And I don't know. I was also kind of at the point where, you know, I sold Burning Angel and I was like sort of just 
working on, I guess, projects in the industry that my full heart wasn't in. Um, almost like it was a nine to five job or something, which wasn't really um, what I was there to do. And uh, yeah, and I was like everything I came here to do, I'm done. And now it's time to like go back and uh, go home. And now I have a job in water. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So my point is like when you're saying people are going to tune in because they want yeah. all the scandal stories. No, this podcast, they want to hear about you getting kicked out of the fucking melody bar. That is the bread and butter <laughs> of New Jersey is the world. They want to know that Joanna angels, just like them. She too got kicked out of the melody bar underage back in the day. Yeah, I did. I did. I never got to go. I got to like go in and dance to like one song, like one, one like <laughs> Depeche Mode song. Are you going to see Depeche Mode? I don't have tickets yet. And my, I want to see them. And also my wife is like, we got to go see The Cure on this tour. And I'm inclined to agree. Okay. But it's hard to get these fucking tickets. I'm actually going to post a TikTok about going to see The Cure. Because everybody's posting like, oh my God, I got tickets to see The Cure. Kind of funny. Your friend, Fid. I have every whatever. And I actually looked up the day. It was in two, 2000. Me and Fid, I remember when we... I remember like tickets were going on sale to see, to see the cure. Um, in year, I think it was year 2000, 2001. Um, and um, I was like, let's go get tickets. And this was before tickets were sold on the internet before tickets were, you know, and I, you could, you could maybe buy them on the phone back then, but you would call and it would be busy. It would be busy. And it was like, and then it was sold out, you know? So the, way to guarantee getting tickets was if you actually go get them in person so me and and fid we lived together at the time i was like let's go get cure tickets and i actually remember i worked at applebee's at the time i had saved up my money from working at applebee's which applebee's are we talking um in piscataway beautiful Fid um, okay. had no money so i saved up enough money to buy us both cure tickets which whatever it was, I don't know, $375 or something for the two of us to get the worst seats. Well, no, it was at the Roseland Ballroom, so it was just all one ticket. Um, anyway, I'm sidetracking. I was like, okay, let's go get tickets. And then we kind of like, I don't know, strategized. And I was like, we have to go the night before. They were selling tickets. I remember it was some record store in the mall. Was it like, was Sam Goody still open then? Was it Tower Records? I don't remember which record store it was. And, and so we got there. We took at, a Menlo Park, Menlo Park Mall? Yes, at the Menlo Park Mall. <laughs> at midnight the night before, okay? We were the first ones there, surprisingly. At like 2 a.m., a few other goth kids showed up. So we were kind of sitting right outside the entrance. And like, you know, policemen and stuff were like, you guys can't be here. And I was like, well, we need to be the first ones in. Anyway, um, we... Then once they realized what was going on, they're like, okay, uh, you can't like be here overnight. Um, I don't know. They obviously didn't know like who the cure was or something. Anyway, we, we, we got there at midnight, we waited overnight. And then once these other goth kids like came there, it was like, we, this was not like everyone's in this together. Like they were like, this was like, everybody was kind of looking like when at 8am when this opens, like, like who's going to be the first one. I was like, I was here first. Anyway. We all ignored the policeman and everybody was literally just sitting outside the entrance in the freezing cold. We had like blankets around us and stuff. 
And then I remember me and Finn, we were like snuggling under a blanket, you know? And then I was like, it's so cold. And then I was like, why? And then he's like, why don't we like go back in the car for a little bit? And then I was like, okay. And we got up to go back into the car to sit for like an hour. Mind you, this is two in the morning. It didn't open till 8 a.m. And I saw one of the other goth kids like be like, all right, now we're first. And I'm like, we can't go back to the car. <laughs> we have to. And so we took turns sleeping. So what I'm trying to say, I went into the car and slept for like two hours with the heat on. And then he went into the car for two hours. We took turns so no one could take our place in line. This was like all out war with like me and six other goth kids. <laughs> anyway, um, it opened and we got the tickets. Um, and like, I don't know, for whatever it was, it's like every rec, like Ticketmaster approved center only got like 10 tickets or something yeah. it got the tickets and then the two people in back of us got the tickets and the other two people in back of them did not get the tickets it was sold out um after that so we were really proud but i have to admit i remember it was the most boring show i've ever seen in my life <laughs> like i remember like and it was at the rosaline ballrooms with no seats and i just remember like standing up and i remember me and finn kept looking at each other like wow, this is so amazing. And like yawning, like he doesn't, he doesn't move at all on stage. He doesn't speak. Um, and then I actually saw them again at Coachella in 2009. I, the first time I ever came to LA was uh, to go to Coachella to see the Pixies, their first reunion mm -hmm. show. And The Cure also played that year. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm like more grown up now. And I like boring shows, maybe like whatever. And I actually even remember, I was like, well, maybe this will be more exciting if I do drugs. Um, so I did. And it was still really boring. <laughs> <laughs> this is the type of shit. To and hear that you once slept out outside of a Ticketmaster at the Menlo Park Mall. Yep. This is the type of hot scoop we can only get here on New Jersey yep. is the world. Yeah. Uh, with... with we had a blanket. We had a blanket. We really didn't come prepared for this, but I thought we could just sit in the car. Yeah. These fucking goths. No respect. No respect. I know. No respect. It was like all out war then. <laughs> like, I, yeah. Um, and, you know, we got the tickets, but it's so boring. And not even then, you know, respectfully, like, I was like, I even remember then, I was like, oh. I don't know. Robert Smith might be getting kind of old to do this. Or maybe he just wasn't into it. I mean, I, he probably wasn't. I don't know. Well, I yeah. mean, it seemed like he didn't want to be there. That's just, that was like the impression I got. And I was that because I clearly wanted to be there. Yeah. So or, it sounds like you're telling me I don't need to scramble to get these cure tickets. You know, I actually, like now that everybody's talking about the cure, I went and I looked back. I, f I looked on YouTube to try to find footage. I was like, was the show as boring as I remember? I found footage on YouTube from the Roseland Ballroom Cure show. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just as boring as I remember. It's very boring. And you know, usually when you see live videos, like there's always like a cutback to the audience. There's no cutback to the audience. Ah, <laughs> they didn't want to catch you yawning right in, right in frame. <laughs> in the front row <laughs> amazing well joanna um, unless I, something's changed unless you know in, in robert smith however how old is i robert? love it oh, no, i mean he's robert gotta be 60 like right no i'm not like being you know ageist or something i'm very old too um not saying that old people can't do amazing things um 
how old is he? He's got to be. He's got to be in his sixties, right? Like he was. He was older when we were young. When yeah. We, and now we're older, so he must be much older. It's only <laughs> so maybe his older age, he got like a a burst of energy. Who knows? Maybe they, yeah, maybe he, uh, maybe they put him on like testosterone treatments and he's really after <laughs> getting it. Young buck gunning for it again. Um, That's all I'm saying. Anyway, okay. This well, has been lovely. Up with you. Oh, reminiscing about New Brunswick, hearing these stories, it's really great. Anything that makes Fid sweat, I'm a fan of. Everybody knows this. Um, I love it so much. It's always great to talk to you every few years. And yes, let's follow up. I have advice on comedy because. That's- and yeah, if you come into the city, let's let's like um, hang out. We could drink whiskey and throw up on the sidewalk. Or oh, oh even just thinking about it, the, the full blown midlife crisis mode. So, like, if you want if you want to throw up on the sidewalk, like, I am so game. Maybe it's time. Maybe it's time for me. If imagine that, if listen, if you're gonna fall off the wagon, <laughs> you should fall off the wagon to relive your college days with Joanna. <laughs> like, that's that's the way to do it. So, um, no, I'll I'll drink canned water, and you can pull my hair back. You can. I don't have bangs anymore because I'm going so bald. But you can. Uh, I used to have actual bangs, and you once held them back on Plum Street. How weird is that? Anyway, this has been lovely. Yeah. I think our listeners are going to flip out Yeah, knowing that you're one of them. And I think they're going to really enjoy this. And thank you for doing it. Yeah, thank you. It's good to catch up with you. Let's talk soon. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the World is Chris Gethard, Nikki Bonaduce, Don Finelli, Andrea Quinn, Carson Kopp, and Mike D. New Jersey is the World is produced and edited by Carson Kopp, Mike D, and Andrea Quinn. You can find us online at New Jersey is the World and on Instagram at New Jersey is the World. Also, please feel free to reach out and leave us a voicemail by contacting the home office of New Jersey is the World at 973 973- 780-4660 in regards to anything show or New Jersey related. Please subscribe and listen to more episodes of New Jersey is the World on your favorite podcast service. If you're looking to join our extremely opinionated and Jersey-ish community, head on over to patreon.com and search for New Jersey is the World. We have merch, which you can find at belowthecollar.com after searching for Chris Gethard. Once again, thank you for listening to this presentation of New Jersey is the World. New Jersey is the world, where New Jersey is the world.